Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Irvindale. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Christ Jesus. Today we conclude Mike's message on Luke. Jesus had nothing to repent of. He had no sin in his life. So why in the world would he submit himself to baptism? Well, there's two reasons, and the first one is found in Matthew 3.15. Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. That was the statement he gave himself. When John was saying, no, 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 I need to be baptized of you. I'm not even worthy, blah, 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 blah. Uh, uh, Jesus said, no, you need to baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. Let me break it down. This is what I believe Jesus is meaning when he says that. As John preached the message of a baptism of repentance... It was a message that separated the righteous from the unrighteous. In other words, the righteous thing for people to do when they heard the message of John was to submit to it. The righteous thing to do was to repent. The righteous thing to do then was to be baptized as an outward sign to everyone else that I have repented, I have changed my path and my course. The unrighteous thing would be to reject the message and thus then reject the baptism. And although Jesus had nothing to to repent of, here's what he did have need of. He needed to identify fully with the righteousness that God had established for mankind. God is the one who established this righteousness of repentance and then baptism to show that repentance. And this is what men and women were being called to. And Jesus who came in the flesh to identify with us and to be like us in every way except as a sinner, he needed to confirm that. He needed to walk in that same path of righteousness. And so by Jesus submitting himself to this baptism that John was doing, it was fulfilling the righteousness of the Father within himself. And it was giving testimony that in fact that What God had called for was righteous. It gives meaning to Hebrews 4.15 where we find that Jesus, our high priest, is acquainted with our weakness. We're told there that he overcame every temptation. He submitted to every requirement of righteousness so that his righteousness could become our righteousness by faith. And so Jesus was baptized first to fulfill the righteousness of that God had brought down and was doing through John's baptism. Second, Jesus' baptism was all about identification. Baptism has always been about identification, and it remains so today. For Jesus, it was God's will that he would be identified as the Messiah through this act of baptism. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 33. John, the Gospel writer, reveals that John the Baptist was given revelation that the one upon whom he saw the Spirit descending and remaining on, that person was the Messiah. Luke says that when Jesus was baptized by John, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. And a voice 
came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And there we have it. There we have John receiving supernatural confirmation of the identity of the Messiah. You see, John had known that his relative Mary, her son, is the Messiah. He had known that, but he had never met him. So he didn't know what he looked like. He didn't know where to find him per se. He just knew that he was coming and he was on the premises, but he didn't know who he was. But now, having baptized him, having seen this miraculous sign of the Spirit coming and landing upon him and the voice from heaven speaking that this is my son in whom I am well pleased, he now knows. And I want you to see what happens next. John, the gospel writer, tells us that the next day after the baptism of Jesus, the next day, John was back out at the Jordan again and he's preaching his message and he's baptizing people, but he sees Jesus coming down the path. And as he sees Jesus coming down to the path, he stops the proceedings and he makes a pronouncement to everyone who was there and who could hear. And here's what he said. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He clearly identified Jesus as the one whom had been sent by the Father. And he was able to do that and he was able to do that with confidence Because it was through the baptism of Jesus that the Father gave John the sign that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. You know, for John the Baptist, when he was able to stand there amongst all those people and proclaim Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it was the highest point of his life the highest point of his ministry. Most likely it was kind of like, you know, the the quarterback who who makes the 80-yard pass that wins the Super Bowl. It's exciting. It's thrilling. It's what I've been living for. And now here it is. And he is out in the open. And he has been identified. Well, the thrill of this moment in John's life would not last long. His exit from the world and from his ministry would occur on the heels of his boldness to relentlessly confront sin wherever he found it. And that's what we find being mentioned in verses 19 through 20. We go to other gospels, though, to find the complete story. Remember back at the beginning of chapter 3 how Luke mentioned all those, those five leaders of the Roman Empire to set the stage for when these things are happening in space and time? Well, one of the people that he mentioned was Herod, who was Tetrarch of Galilee. The Herod he was talking about's name was Antipas. And Herod Antipas had found himself in an immoral relationship with the wife of his half-brother, Philip. Now, it's not the same Philip that you see there in verse 1. It's a different Philip. But um, it was his half-brother, and he, he, he enters into this relationship with Philip's wife. Her name was Herodias. Not only does he enter into this relationship with someone who's married to another, but it comes down that Herodias was actually Antipas's niece. And so uh, they divorced their spouses and they married, and of course their marriage becomes an incestuous one. And John was absolutely relentless 
in speaking out against this immorality. I mean, he wouldn't stop talking about it and challenging them to stop and to do the right thing. And when all else failed to pacify him or to shut him up, Antipas had John arrested. Now, this is about six months after the baptism of Jesus. While arrest was good enough for Antipas, it was not good enough for Herodias. She hated John. She hated John with a passion because he had publicly stood out and opposed her and was a threat not just to her happiness, but to her, her quest for power, which was really what their relationship was all about anyway. So she plotted to have him killed. And we come to Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 through 12, and I'm just going to give you a synopsis very quick of how John the Baptist's life comes to an end. Matthew tells us that uh, Herodias planned a birthday party for Herod. And Herodias knew that Herod had a weakness. He loved beautiful women. So he, she got her daughter to do a seductive dance at the party. And apparently the dance was so exciting, so intoxicating, that Herod, to show his appreciation, said that he would give her whatever she asked for. She had already been prompted, however, by her mother to ask for the head of John the Baptist. She said, what I want is I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And while that was not what Antipas wanted to do, it's what he did. He did it because he couldn't let his promise fail in front of all these people that he had made the promise. And so he has John executed. And John's life comes to an end very unceremoniously and Matthew fourteen twelve records it, that after he was beheaded, his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. That's the end of his life. We'll come back to that later on because Jesus goes into talking about John and we'll deal with other issues when we come to that point. But someone might be tempted as they hear how John's life came to, a, to an end to say, wow, you know, I just can't believe that God would treat one of his prime servants so shabbily. What a terrible way for someone who had given his life, for someone who had kept his life usable and, 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 and allowed the Spirit of God to, to move and work through him in such miraculous ways to, to, to let his life end that way. I can understand how somebody would think that or feel that. But you know, when you stand real close to a wall, all you can see is just that little bit that's in front of you. When you back up, oftentimes a bigger picture begins to emerge. And as we back up and see John the Baptist's life, we definitely see a different picture emerging that says God was gracious and good to John. For example... John had the distinctive privilege of being filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his birth. John, his preaching was empowered to the place that it renewed the expectation in his nation for the Messiah. John saw the sign of the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus and was able to declare with, without any fear that he was the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. 
But at that point, his mission was complete. At that point, there was nothing left on earth for him to do. And so God, in his mercy, graduated John from mortal to immortal status. John was ushered into the presence of his creator. For the past 2,000 years, John has been enjoying the splendor of heaven and the presence of Jesus. And finally, John goes down in history as the only one to receive this honor. And he received it from Jesus himself. Jesus says of John, Truly I say, among, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen none, no one greater than John the Baptist. I don't think he was treated shabbily at all. I think he received a privilege that has rivaled anyone else's who ever lived. And so we come to the place in the text where the people are prepared. The Messiah has been identified. At this point in history, the work of redemption has been done. And I ask those of you who are here this morning, those of you who are watching by way of the internet, where do you stand today with Jesus? This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.